Hello, Jim McLean here. In a few weeks, we'll be starting a new year with a new governor. Throughout the campaign season on the My Fellow Kansans podcast, we explored one big question. Is Kansas trending back to the political center or continuing its trek to the right? We got at least a partial answer to that with Democrat Laura Kelly's election to the state's top job. But voters somewhat muddled the message by giving her a more conservative legislature to work with. Cap off this season of the podcast, I sat down with the incoming governor in front of a live audience in Topeka. Governor Lack Kelly, could you please join us on stage? getting used to that? (laughs) No. (laughs) It'll fade in time, probably. Well, uh, so how you been? What's it to you? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I've had nothing but time since the election. You know, I've been binge watching the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You know, nothing but time. Yeah. How about you? Oh, I've been binge watching The Good Wife again. given that I didn't spend any time with my husband for the past year. Well, yeah, okay. Or not. (laughs) Uh, You know, I imagine you've been just, it's just been one endless budget meeting after another. Really, what are your days filled with these days as you get ready for this transition? Well, we're really focused on on two things. Uh, One, yes, uh, putting the budget together. That's absolutely essential. Uh, and I've been working with some, some terrific people uh, in the Division of Budget, and then many of you in the audience know Dwayne Gosen, uh, who was the budget director under Governor Graves and the budget director under Governor Sibelius, uh, and he is helping me uh, put that all together uh, as we go through the transition. So uh, I expect we'll have it done uh, on time, and uh, we'll, we'll give it to the legislature as soon as we get into session. Uh, The other thing we've been spending a lot of time on is really looking uh, all across the state of Kansas and beyond uh, to find the best and the brightest folks uh, to bring in here uh, to put in charge of our agencies, uh, most of which uh, need a lot of work. And you've promised a bipartisan cabinet. Is that what you're working on? Well, I think you can just look at the transition team. You know, we named our team leaders, and, you know, we've got Dwayne Gosen, who worked for both a Democrat and a a Republican. Uh, Natalie Haig uh, was Governor Graves' uh, general counsel and uh, chief of staff. And then Joyce Alagrucci was Governor Sebelius' chief of staff. So I don't think you can get any more bipartisan than that. Do you have any reaction to some news that just occurred today? Uh, Your friend... Senator Barbara Boyer from Mission Hills, uh, switched parties. Uh, she became a Democrat, left the Republican Party. It was, it's been rumored for quite a while. I know she's been thinking about it for quite a while. You probably had some advance notice. What do you make of that? Well, um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Senator Barbara Boyer uh, is a senator from Johnson County. Uh, I think she was in the House first and then came over to the Senate uh, a few years ago. Uh, and I worked very closely with her uh, when uh, she was vice chair of the health committee, uh, and I'm ranking minority on that. So uh, we've had a very close working relationship uh, for several years now. Uh, and yes, I did have advance notice, but I also know what, what a hard time it was for her to make that decision. Uh, you know, party affiliation is often like your religion. 
and it's very, very difficult to go through that process and decide that it's, it's time to make a change. So uh, I'm delighted that she's there. I think uh, she will be able to have a, a louder voice uh, because she will be in, put into some very significant positions uh, and she can use her expertise. She is a retired physician, mm -hmm. uh, for instance, and uh, so she'll be able to use that expertise again uh, now that she's in the Democratic caucus. And for those who don't know, she uh, was stripped of her committee assignments earlier in the year because she endorsed uh, a Democrat in the third congressional race. And then she later on, she appeared in an ad for you. So the die was cast after that for sure. Uh, but she'll probably take a, she might take your ranking position on the health committee. I, nothing's been announced yet, but that's, that's a likelihood, yes. I think there'll be others. Is she the only one? Uh, we're in the midst of a bit of a shift here post-election. Uh, do you have advance notice of anybody else? I don't have any advance notice, Jim, but nice try. <laughs> w w would you tell us if you did? No. <laughs> All right, we'll try again later. Uh, you, know, you made a lot during the campaign. I, I think the word you used over and over again was the devastation done to Kansas state government over the last eight years. I mean, it's, everybody knows we've had revenue problems in the state, right? And so you're now sitting in these budget meetings and you're getting a pretty deep dive on all the agencies. And you're getting a first-hand look. I mean, you already knew some of this because you were on the Ways and Means Committee for so long, but you're getting a first-hand look really at the state of these agencies. And, and, and what are you learning? Anything really jump, surprise you about what you're learning in terms of the state of state government? I wouldn't say that there were any surprises because you're right. I mean, for the last eight years, uh, I've been the ranking minority member on the Ways and Means Committee. So we have... Uh, reviewed all of the budgets and all of the uh, agencies over that time. And it was very apparent uh, over all of those eight years that slowly but surely uh, we were just decimating our agencies. They, we've been cleaned out. I mean, you go over to the Kansas Department of Transportation, now it's like a ghost town. Uh, the same thing over revenue, the same thing over commerce. Uh, and I think everybody's fully aware of the problems that we have in the Department of Children and Families. Uh, we have within our mental health system, within our Department of Corrections. So not, no surprises, but um, I, I am uh, disappointed that the devastation is even worse than I thought. Uh, and it's going to take a long time to put Kansas back. Do you think Kansans really have any appreciation of that? I mean, we're going to talk about issues here, and you certainly are going to have initiatives, things that you're going to want to do. But just how much fix-it work do you have to do? And do you think Kansans really understand uh, how much of that needs to be done just to get back to a, a certain capacity in state government? Well, I don't think anybody can know how bad it is until you actually get in there and do the deep dive. And that's part of what our transition team has been doing. You know. Uh, beyond the three folks I talked about and leadership on that transition, uh, we then have people with uh, lots of institutional knowledge from all of the various agencies across the state. And they have created small teams and they've been going in and really doing the deep dive to see where the issues are. In terms and of looking at vacant positions and priority yeah. positions that you have Who, to who's fill. Who's in positions, qualifications for those positions, uh, vacancies certainly. Um, programs that have been you know, eliminated uh, or inappropriately funded. I mean, just all of the kinds of things uh, that one will find when they do a top to bottom, essentially audit uh, of the agency. And 
Yeah, we are. Um, we know that we, and we, we said this all through the campaign, that the problems are broad and they're deep. Uh, and we are going to have to approach them, you know, sort of like you would a triage. You know, we go after the critical, uh, the most critical first. Uh, and then we prioritize all of the others. Uh, and so we will, you know, we've, we've said we, we would and we will focus on education, uh, making sure that we're uh, meeting uh, the constitutional requirement to fund education. Uh, and we will look uh, to expand Medicaid. Uh, and then we will also look at infrastructure. And uh, because we are actually literally in a life and death situation in DCF, they'll be very high on the radar scene. That's Department of Children and Families, the foster care system. Yeah, I want to go back and, and touch individually on each of those issues. But first, first, I want to remind the audience that if you have questions for the governor-elect, fill out those cards and start handing them down. So when we get to that part of the program, we'll, we'll be ready to go with that. But, you know, I, I want to talk to about a, a bit of a structural question because, you know, any repair work that you need to do, any initiatives that you have in mind, uh, you're obviously going to have to work with the legislature. You talked about uh, governing in a very bipartisan fashion. And what you have really is a legislature that has three roughly um, equal factions. You have conservative Republicans, you have moderate Republicans, and you have Democrats with the conservative Republicans uh, basically holding pretty much all of the, the leadership positions. And, you know... How much they decide to cooperate with you is going to, I think, make a big difference in terms of what you can get done. And as I told you, we had been talking to some legislators about uh, how they might work with you. We, we did that on the day that they had leadership elections at the State House. And we want to start with uh, a cut of Dan Hawkins who, uh, from Wichita, who's a Republican who's the new majority leader of the Kansas House. And we just asked him about working with you. And this is what he had to say. She's not a stranger to the process. She knows that the governor gets what we send her. You know, so the governor-elect can say uh, a lot of things about what she wants, but ultimately it's what comes out of these two bodies that she gets a chance to either sign or veto. And so um, I would say that laundry list that she has out there, probably not going to be fulfilled in, in entirety. Any surprises there? No, I, I know uh, now Majority Leader Dan Hawkins very well. I've worked with him for a long time. Uh, previously, he was chair of the House Health Committee, so right. I've, I've uh, interacted with him a lot on a lot of different issues, and obviously we, we were the ones at the negotiating table uh, during conference committee. So uh, I, I know Dan, and um, I believe that we will be able to work together. Uh, and, you know, he said, I won't get everything I want. Of course not. You know, that's... You know, it's all about uh, reaching consensus and, and compromising. So, uh, I think we'll be able to do that. Have you? Uh, maybe you've had private conversations with Dan and Speaker Reichman and the others. But w what signal was he trying to sound or send there? W what did you make of that? Anything? I mean, well, remember he was running for majority leader in the House, so I think he yeah. was trying to send the message uh, that he would be a strong leader for the majority in the House. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think he will be, um, but I also know him well enough to know uh, that uh, you know he, he wants to do the right thing. And uh, when it's all said and done, um, you know I won't get my way all the time. But yeah. I, I think Representative Hawkins will will work with me. And you've worked with these people before, and you think you can work with them, notwithstanding the political posturing, which is to be expected at this point, right? I I, I think so. Um, you know, I have, over the 14 years I was in the Senate, you know, there were times that I was forging compromises with 
the moderate Republicans. Occasionally, it was with conservative Republicans. So uh, we'll just go down that road. And you said we're evenly divided in thirds. Um, but what we we always did in the legislature uh, until we went through the, the years when all the moderates were ousted mm -hmm. uh, is always the moderate Republicans and the Democrats worked together right. uh, and, and formed what we called the moderate majority. And I think we've got that. Uh, still available to us in it's, the House and the Senate. The governing majority, moderate Republicans and Democrats, somewhat smaller, though, than it has been, was last year, for this instance. This is true. Right? But we won't have to override vetoes of, <laughs> of important legislation. You may have to sustain a few. Huh? Right? We do. All right. Well, let's get to uh, a couple of specific issues, because uh, school finance in particular, I know that was a priority of yours uh, in the campaign. We've had this seemingly endless litigation over funding public schools. Uh, you said during the campaign that you were going to meet the constitutional requirement to fund schools, get the Kansas Supreme Court to sign off on that, and be done with this lawsuit once and for all. Last year, you all appropriated some $520 million over several years, and uh, the court came back and said you needed an inflation uh, adjustment in there, which is, what, roughly 90, an additional $90 million a year, something like it's that? It's in the ballpark. Right. And so I think you're heading into the session, right, just thinking you're going to get that done? Is that your intent? It is my intent to get that done. And we'll be able to do that without raising taxes. There, you know, if you, if you remember, a couple of years ago, we, we overturned the Brownback tax experiment. Mm -hmm. And what that did was allow revenues to start coming back into the state coffers and put us on the road to recovery. Uh, and we continued down that path. And, uh, you know, we had very good news when the consensus revenue estimates were done, which is really wonky, but that's when they tell us how much money we can expect. And they increased that by over $300 million uh, for the next six months. What that does is it gives us money in the ending balance to draw down uh, to take care of the school finance problem uh, without breaking the bank and with being able to uh, fund some of the other priorities. Right. A lot of pent-up demands. And so the estimates you talk about, uh, roughly $900 million ending balance based on current spending. And so you've got some money to work with there. But on the school finance issue, just in the last couple of days, uh, uh, Representative Hawkins uh, House Speaker Ron Reichman and Senate Majority Leader Jim Denning were talking to some educators over in the Johnson County area, and they said that they're not sure we can afford this additional $90 million, and they want to go back and rewrite the law you passed last year. So what does that mean in terms of how easy this is going to be to get this, uh, this thing settled? Well, you're talking about the school finance plan that we passed. I am. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, um, and what they're talking about is wanting really to rewrite the school finance plan, uh, and then they will accompany that with an attempt to get a constitutional amendment to uh, remove the court's authority right. uh, to um, tell us whether we've met our requirement to fund education. So, um, you know, I think, one, we will find when the budget comes out that, indeed, we can afford it, uh, and... Two, I think most people, all Kansans perhaps, are really tired of having this issue in the court uh, and want it gone. And we, we have the money to do that. And I think uh, to not do that would be incredibly irresponsible. And I think most of the legislators get that too. So, so are they staking out this position on the school finance bill as a bargaining chip for the constitutional amendment they want? I know you oppose that. Uh, but as governor, 
again, with the divisions in the legislature, might you have to compromise on something like that to get the money you want? Uh, I may have to compromise on things to get other things that I, that I prioritize, but uh, that won't be one of them. The constitutional amendment specifically, exactly. you're going to oppose that no matter what? Yeah, well, you know, actually I have nothing to do with it as governor. When you think about it, well, you know, it, that will go through the House, it will go through the Senate. If it makes it through both of those chambers, then it goes right. on the ballot to the people. Uh, the governor has no sign-off uh, one way or the other on the constitutional amendment. So I will leave it to the legislature uh, to address that issue. But this won't, this will hardly be the first time uh, this has been brought up. Right. Uh, it has always had a very hard time getting through the legislature because it requires a, the two-thirds majority. Uh, and then on the rare occasion when it did, the people of Kansas said no. Yeah, in they your estimation. The, they wanted the court to maintain its, um, its duty uh, to, and, and uh, you know, provide for the separation of powers and the, and the checks and balances that the court provides to the legislature. In order for that to even be a good bargaining chip within the legislative process, they have to have the votes to threaten to pass it, to put it on the ballot. And, and I know in recent years they haven't. What is your estimation now as to whether they do or not, given the slight changes we've seen in the legislature? Uh, you still don't get to uh, the two-thirds majority. Okay. I don't. I don't think. You know, obviously we haven't counted all the noses yet, but um, I, I don't think that. But in the uh, in the if in the end uh, they are able to get it out of the legislature, I have no doubt that the people of Kansas will reject that. Okay. You mentioned before that we have a, bit, uh, a little more money to work with. The consensus estimates, the revenues now are coming in above projections. So uh, are, are money problems as a state, are they behind us? Are they over? Oh, I wish. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, they're better. They're, yeah. they're far better. It's always nicer to have more money coming in uh, than the original estimate, but by no means, Jim. You know, I, I said before, there, there is money to take care of some of the really critical uh, situations that we've got in our state. Uh, it will take, you know, more years of, of growth uh, for, and, and when I say growth, I'm not talking about raising taxes. I'm just talking about the economy just growing. Right. Uh, right. And we will, we will be doing something, some things in this administration that will stimulate the economy, like funding education. And so we, we need some steady years of growth, uh, and as that revenue comes in, we will have that priority list of, of uh, issues and concerns, programs um, that need to be put back in place. And that is what I wanted to talk to you about. As money becomes, becomes available, you know, what, what are going to be your priorities in, in what order? Uh, and we know schools, funding schools will be one of them. You mentioned Medicaid expansion a minute ago. Uh, the cost estimate there is kind of all over the map, but at least 70-some million dollars, maybe more than that, in, in additional state spending. Is that something you have on your list to do early, or do you think we have to wait? No, with Medicaid expansion, I, I th what we're doing is, is really going to bring together some folks and look. There's a, there are a whole bunch of different ways you can do Medicaid expansion. 
and there are different models now that other states who did expand Medicaid have in place. And so we'll be reviewing those to see which ones work, what doesn't work, and what's uh, doable within our budget constraints. That's right. You're talking about putting together uh, a task force, a committee of some sort, to come up with a Kansas-specific expansion plan. Is that correct? Uh, we, we do want to put together a very specific plan for Kansas. And okay. we will have some folks who know what they're talking about, you know, looking at what the other states are doing uh, and figuring out how we modify those and bring those to Kansas. Is, is that something that's going to be ready to go this session, or do you know yet? I, I hope that we have it ready to go. And you think you've got the votes. That's going to happen finally? Well, remember, Jim, that two years ago we did pass Medicaid you expansion. You did. And, the governor uh, vetoed it. Governor Brownback vetoed it. And we were not able to override that veto, but we were only three votes short in the House. And so uh, I know that there have been some changes. I think there are some folks who've come into the House who will be, uh, maybe would vote to um, sustain that, uh, a veto like that. Uh, but I don't think you can get to the two-thirds majority. Well, let's move on to another issue, because it's, it's pretty clear that you have some things that you want to spend money on immediately, uh, but you also want to be very cautious until you really understand whether our revenues have sufficiently recovered and will continue to be robust in the out years because those consensus estimates you mentioned actually show us, you know, based on some variabilities, you know, having a deficit uh, by 2022. So you, you have to be cautious about that. And one of the things I think the Republican leadership is very interested in doing right off the bat is the return of the so-called federal windfall. When the federal government made those tax changes, uh, it, it had an impact on some state taxpayers who could no longer deduct certain things. And so they're very eager, I think, to get a bill, uh, that return of the windfall bill, on the move early in the session. And, and you have expressed some concern about that. Uh, let's listen to Representative Stephen Johnson from Assyria. He's a Republican chair of the House Tax Committee. This is what he has to say about why this is a priority for Republicans. This was a tax increase last year that I feel we did not intend. Um, so we'll see if the legislature agrees with that, if the governor agrees with that, if we get a bill to her desk. And he's a reasonable guy, uh, but the price tag for that is something like $90 million. And so what's your, what's your position on that kind of out, right out of the gate? Uh, my position on that is the same as my position has been throughout the campaign uh, regarding taxes. You know, we still do not know, Jim, the full impact of what we did when we overturned uh, the Brownback tax experiment, adding to that uh, what the federal government did. And so uh, I think we need to let the dust settle on all of this, and we will know better uh, at the end of this year, uh, well, and when I say this year, I'm talking fiscal year, right. the, uh, which would be July 1st. We'll have a much better idea then uh, what the full impact of both of those uh, moves have been. And it's at that point that we could start talking about um, modifications to the tax structure, but not before. But won't this be a pretty big political football right off the bat? I mean, you heard a little bit in, in Representative Johnson's rhetoric, but uh, Senator Tyson the other day, uh, you said that we could do the things that we need to do immediately without raising taxes, and a lot of the Republicans are going to say this is a de facto tax increase. I mean, are, are you ready for that rhetorical battle? Well, we already battled that one last year, you know, and... Um, On the last day of the session, yeah. The la Yeah, I mean, that, that actually 
uh, did pass in the Senate and then got tied up in the House. 59-59 um, tied, takes 63 to pass a bill, and so it died. Uh, so we've had that conversation. Uh, we've had an election, and I think the people of Kansas spoke uh, loudly. That they they tend to like the approach that I want to take, which is fiscal responsibility, uh, and being very conservative about what we do right now because we don't know. We don't have all the data. So where do you think the moderate Republicans that you'll need to hold the line on that. Where are they on this issue? Do you have any idea at the moment? Well, I do, just given uh, how they voted last year, I have a pretty good sense of where they are. Okay. And so you, you talked about wanting to be cautious with the revenues and really understand exactly where we are in terms of this recovery that's underway, but there is a long list of pent-up demands. Uh, the supplemental bill the other day was about $1.3 billion over the next couple of years. You've got You've got highways, you've got the problems you mentioned with the foster care system. Uh, you've got uh, a lot of people talking about wanting to lower the state sales tax on food. We're among, if not the highest in the country on that. Uh, what are your priorities in terms of the limited amount of money that you want to spend immediately to, to rectify some of those things? Well, education, you know, is, is number one, Medicaid expansion, uh, though we might be able to design that in a way that's pretty much revenue neutral. Uh, will be first, and then foster care, and the Department of Children and Families would be third. Yeah, what's it going to take there? Do you have any idea yet after the meetings? This is something where we try one thing, there's a new secretary, there's a hue and cry about children sleeping in offices, and a lot of tragic cases where kids were in abusive homes, were not removed, and were injured or died at the hands of abusers. There have been Lots of stories like that, so it's pretty clear, and foster care numbers are going up and up and up and up and up. So do you even have a handle on what the problems are, do, or how multidimensional is it? Well, I, I do have somewhat of a handle. Uh, I mean, we're learning right. new things uh, every day, but I served for a year and a half on the Child Welfare Task Force, and we did a pretty deep dive ourselves in what the issues were there, and actually, uh, the task force just came out with about 24 recommendations, I believe, that will be presented to the legislature and to um, the administration uh, in January. So we'll be able to take a good look at that. I already know what they are, but, but we will look at that as we're th figuring out how we're going to modify our approach uh, to foster care in particular, but the entire child welfare system. Some research has indicated recently there's some connection between uh, some of the changes the Brownback administration made in eligibility requirements for some welfare programs, uh, TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, and the Food Stamp Program, and the foster care numbers. And you've indicated that you'd like to roll back uh, uh, some of those eligibility restrictions that were imposed. How, is that a pri how much of a priority is that for you? Uh, it's, it's a priority. Uh, we actually, um, this, this interim, I also serve on the CanCare Oversight Committee, and that committee uh, recommended that a bill be introduced that would roll back uh, TANF eligibility requirements to pre-2011, which is when we started to really double down on those on uh, those um, programs. So uh, that that I see as the starting line for the legislature to have the conversation, because clearly it's the legislature who will have to make those decisions. Uh, part of what we've done over the past eight years is that we took what had been in rules and regulations, so 
the agency actually had some, some uh, flexibility on eligibility, uh, but we codified all of that. So all of these really, really stringent restrictions on uh, both the temporary assistance for needy family, child care assistance, and SNAP is now in law. Mm -hmm. And so it right. will take the legislature going in and making those changes, but we will provide, well, they will be provided with the baseline. Uh, but you're going to make recommendations bill. specific to those things to the legislature? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's important. It'll be part of, um, you know, our solution to the, um, uh, the problem at DCF with foster care, because you're right. I mean, KU did a study that showed a direct correlation between uh, the changes that we made to TANF eligibility and the number of kids in foster care, which uh, in the last eight years went from having about 5,000 kids uh, in our system, which is a lot, but now we're over 7,500. And it uh, continues to grow. Yeah, and you know, it, it's not just the changes in eligibility, but there's a direct correlation with that. We're going to go to audience questions in just one moment, but a, a one more political football to uh, dispense with here. Uh, one of the things that you've also talked about prior to taking office is uh, this controversial adoption law that was passed last year. You talked about you're, you're, we're looking into the possibility of maybe not enforcing it. Uh, are you still thinking about that? Thinking about it. Okay. Uh, I haven't done anything about it yet. We don't, I don't have all the information I'm going to need yeah. to decide if we can even do that or if, if that's something a legislature will have to do. Yeah, and one of the legislators we talked to, and this will be no surprise to you, Representative Susan Humphreys, who was instrumental in getting this thing passed last year, this is what she had to say about the prospect uh, of perhaps not enforcing that law. That's absolutely an abuse of that power. The reason we put the law into place was to protect the child placing agencies that are faith-based. We don't want to lose any of those. To say that they now can't operate doesn't have the best interest of children. I think we're already at odds as it is, so I don't really know what would happen. And just for a little bit of background, conservatives say the law is needed to protect faith-based organizations that do adoption to protect them from state rules that could force them to violate their quote-unquote strongly held religious beliefs. But uh, others, including uh, you, Governor Kelly, have said that the law expressly allows discrimination against LGBT Kansans, which is why you're looking into it, right? And well, it, it is. I mean, and there's nothing that we would propose that would uh, prevent those uh, child placing agencies from working with the state. It would just prevent them from discriminating and getting any state funding to support that. Okay. Uh, and time for audience questions. I'm looking out. The lights are a little bit bright. Do we have anything yeah, queued up? Amy and Maddie, and okay, they're coming down the aisle. Looks like people. Looks like they've got a handful of cards. That's good. Got a lot of questions. Uh, we probably won't get to them all, but we will try to get to some that at least will be interesting. Um, so I'll I'll, uh, I'll kick it off here with this one from uh, Sheila and Rick Gardner. Uh, who are asking how uh, gun laws can be tightened. Well, hello, Sheila and Rick. I can't see anybody, but <laughs> glad you're here. Um, you know, we, uh, we have probably the, the least restrictive gun laws in, in the country. And I think that and I've always been a strong supporter of the Second Amendment, uh, and I will continue to be. But I think even people like me who support the Second Amendment believe that we need to reinstate some common sense uh, regulations within uh, our gun policy. Uh, and actually, we've taken some steps towards that. Uh, last year, uh, we voted to 
allow for folks who have domestic violence violations to have their guns removed, or convictions, rather. Uh, and we also uh, allowed for uh, public hospitals, public mental health centers, uh, public adult care homes uh, to uh, restrict gun carry uh, on those facilities. So, uh, and we've, we've come very close on some other things like uh, campus carry and whatnot. So I believe that there will be um, continued efforts uh, to just put in place common sense. And, and my intent is to really bring together uh, folks, the stakeholders in this, so your, your educators, your mental health folks, uh, your um, uh, law enforcement people, and help them, have them help me craft common sense gun policy and then work with the legislature to get as much of that done as we can. So if I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, this is something you're interested in bringing a group together to craft something around where well, there's some consensus about maybe what to do, and once you have that, then you would go forward, and that may not be something you do immediately. Well, we can put the, we can put the group together immediately, you know, and that will always be something I have to work with the legislature, and so uh, as soon as we're ready, uh, we will do that. Um, but um, I'm not sure how quickly we can get all that policy put together and then uh, line up the votes. Okay. Another question. So you've talked about abused and neglected children. We've got a question here from Stacy Jeffress about uh, abused and neglected adults. She says there's a backlog at KDADS of um, uninvestigated abused and neglect and exploitation allegations. So how will you be addressing abuse and neglect of adults in the state's care? Yeah, I, uh, hello, Stacy. I don't know where you are either, but do I know everybody? All your friends are here tonight. I was going to say, do I know everybody in this audience? Um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we're looking at as we're drilling down into the agencies. Uh, there are so many of those kinds of, of programs, whether we're looking at the abuse and neglect of adults, of kids, look at our foster care system, but we also have uh, nursing home licensing and all sorts of things like that that uh, need uh, repair. And we will be looking at ways that we can uh, start making those things functional again. Okay, Amy, we'll go back to you. We, we've gotten a few questions uh, regarding mental health resources, uh, but this one specifically comes from Kayleen. Uh, and she says that as a, a teacher working with elementary school students with severe social and emotional needs, uh, she is wondering how uh, we can ensure uh, that we are getting these students the adequate and accessible uh, mental health services that they need. Well, yeah, and just to let you know, I actually started my career in the mental health field. I work with um, children with severe mental health issues in a state psychiatric facility in New York uh, many years ago. Uh, I have, and I've also been working very closely with mental health advocates um, over the past couple of years, looking at ways that we could present sort of a comprehensive plan for mental health services, uh, because it, it's a continuum of services from, you know, pre-prevention uh, right through, you know, hospitalization and then uh, discharge and everything that comes in between. And one of the things that uh, I know I want to see happen uh, is, well, what's happening right now is, you know, the development of uh, regional 
uh, inpatient facilities, including children's crisis centers, across the state. Uh, we, we will put a strong emphasis on making sure that those services are close to home. But the other thing I want to do is work with, and I've been doing this, working with uh, our school districts and our community mental health centers, our safety net clinics, uh, to find ways that we provide you know, licensed social workers, licensed psychologists who are available 24-7, uh, 365, but are housed in the schools uh, when the schools are open. So uh, we're, we actually have a pilot program that we'll be starting up uh, this year, and then I want to look at ways as we get this comprehensive plan put together uh, to broaden that out across the state. And Maddie Fox, before we move on on the mental health issue, the story, Maddie Fox is a, is a reporter for the Kansas News Service, the story you were working on today relative to mental health with the RFP that went out. Uh, do you want to ask the governor something about that? Uh, I could. So there's an RFP, a request for proposal out at the moment for beds, regional beds, to bring some of the state hospital beds so they're not simply in Osawatomie and Learned, which is their two current locations, uh, put them out in the communities. So hospitals or other facilities in Wichita or Lawrence could build some. Um, is, do you think that's a good avenue forward? And do you think that speaks to the sustainability of keeping mental health facilities in places like Osawatomie and Larned that have proven a little hard to staff? Uh, well, I do, I do believe in the regional approach. Uh, I think it's important that we provide those services closer to home, closer to family, closer to work, uh, so that you know, the, the transition back home uh, can, can actually happen. Uh, and family can be involved. You know, you, if if uh, you, you're four hours from Osawatomie State Hospital, the likelihood of your being involved uh, in your loved one's treatment is is very slim, uh, certainly not on a regular basis. So uh, I think it's important that we move services closer to home. Uh, and and I was hit, and so and I actually supported. We we did put some additional funding in for crisis uh, centers last year, and I supported that. And I will continue to support those efforts. Uh, as part of what I expect will come out when we put together a comprehensive plan. You know, one other thing I might add on mental health, because I really am a big believer in pre-prevention, uh, so that we don't even need to get into, you know, the, the school health, is that uh, I want to leave, as my legacy, a very robust early childhood program across the state of Kansas. Uh, and I plan to start working on that uh, this year. Uh, by bringing together uh, our educators, our, our mental health people, uh, and our business community. I, th I think the, the way we can actually afford to do this uh, is by doing it in a public-private uh, partnership. We actually have some, some model programs here in the state of Kansas that if we could broaden would make a huge difference. And what those programs will do for us is take those kids at a very early age, maybe even prenatally, uh, and uh, work with them, work with their families. Uh, what the model programs are showing is that by the time those kids get to kindergarten, they don't need special education. And by the time they're getting to, you know, sort of the wonder years, they're not involved with the juvenile correction system. Uh, and I think we could see a reduction in uh, mental health issues in our schools if we were to do a better job uh, early on. What, what children are you talking about there? What population are you talking about? they're intervening with. Well, I, be I believe that early childhood education is good for everybody. For everybody, right. For everybody. Yeah. Go ahead. 
So we've got a number of questions about climate change um, and what Kansas can do as a state to uh, conserve our environmental resources as we have them. Um, between droughts, floods, the, or excuse me, this is from Justin Moss. Between droughts, floods, heat waves, polar vortexes, and severe weather, Kansans are already suffering from the effects of climate change. Uh, what actions can Kansas expect from your administration to address this? Well, I think there are a few things. Uh, first and foremost, a lot of that's got to happen on a federal level. Uh, and so I will be a governor who will work very closely with our congressional delegation uh, so that you know they recognize how important it is to Kansans that they address these issues on a comprehensive level. Uh, so that that's one thing. I think then they're also, I plan to be very involved uh, with the Western Governors Association and one of their uh, real concerns are environmental issues and, and climate change. And so uh, I want to learn from them what's, if they've done things that have actually made a difference uh, in their states, uh, what we might be able to bring to Kansas. And then I think there's no doubt that we need to continue to grow our uh, use of renewable energies. Uh, we've done a pretty good job uh, over the past few years, and I think Westar reported uh, a month or two ago, you know, that 35% of the uh, electricity that they're providing now is via renewables. I think we need to continue down that path. So Teresa Collins has helpfully provided me a follow-up. Um, how do you plan to implement the Kansas Water Plan and protect the future of water in Kansas's aquifers? That's a huge issue. Uh, obviously, water is probably, well, it's one of the most critical issues in the state of Kansas. And uh, Governor Brownback actually had a group of folks come together and put together uh, a very detailed uh, water plan, a 50-year water plan, which is sort of the way you need to think about water issues. The problem was that there was absolutely no funding, uh, or very little funding put into it. So uh, we've got to go ahead and address that. Uh, the other thing I, I want to look at, you know, right now we deal with water issues in probably nine different uh, agencies across the state. Um, we need to we need to figure out some way to bring those under uh, one umbrella uh, or close to one umbrella, so that we have uh, we have all the stakeholders in the room uh, working together and setting policy and uh, implementation. You know, in a in a consistent. Um, forward-thinking way. Uh, Meredith Fry would like to hear your ideas for uh, criminal justice reform uh, that gives dignity to the inmates. Um, one of the things that we really need to do and we, we plan to do is work with the Sentencing Commission on guidelines uh, for sentencing. Right now we are incarcerating uh, many, many people uh, who are nonviolent. Uh, first-time drug offenders. Uh, those folks no more belong in prison than you or I. Uh, what they need, if anything, is treatment. And, and we've got to figure out a way uh, to divert them from the correctional system. Uh, you know, when we, when we incarcerate those people uh, for a first-time drug offense, you know, we're, we're really separating them from work, separating them from family, and doing great uh, devastation to, to them individually, but also I think our economy. We, we have a workforce shortage here. We don't need to be taking people out of it. Uh, so uh, I think those are those are some things that we will get to uh, quickly. Uh, we also are going to look at our our actual our prison system. Uh, I think there are a lot of problems in the system. I've been made aware of them as uh, you know I've served on the budget committee. Uh, 
Uh, and so we will be drilling down and, and, again, bringing back folks who know how to put things together uh, in the correction system. And I also want to look at, um, I believe it's South Dakota, but don't hold me to that. Uh, there's actually somebody who's sort of uh, one state that's really gone away from the punitive approach to a more rehab approach, and they're having incredible success. Uh, recidivism is, uh, is really, really low. Uh, and what they're doing is they're, they're providing work training and treatment within the prison system. And so when those folks get out, uh, they're able to reintegrate into the community. I want to follow up on that real quick before we go to another question, because as everybody knows, we've had some problems in the prison system over the last couple of years. Uh, violence in the prisons uh, in various places uh, around the state. Uh, and there was some conversation about uh, in part that was because of the way inmates were being moved around and housed and everything else. And you just indicated that we, quote unquote, have problems in the prison system that you learn about as a member of the budget committee. Uh, can you be more specific? I mean, what are the problems with our prison system? Is it overcrowding? Is it the mixing of prisoners? Is it uh, the lack of uh, the state's inability to hire um, uh, correctional staff, all of the above? Probably all of the above, but I, I, I do think that we have uh, severe staffing issues uh, at our correctional facilities. Uh, we know that many of them are understaffed and you've got lots of folks working in a very stressful situation and being required to do overtime uh, to add to it. And then that leads to um, uh, high turnover. Uh, so we're constantly looking for, for folks to take those jobs. So. Uh, we have we have got to address that issue. Okay, we've got time for a few more questions. I want to make sure that we get as many of these audience questions in as possible. So, whichever is it your turn, Maddie? It okay. is my turn. Uh, so, Drew Rosdahl of Lawrence did his homework. He says Missouri and Arkansas, two red states, won by Donald Trump, voted in 2018 to increase their minimum wage. What lessons do you see for Kansas, and what level do you think is right here? So, Arkansas really did do that, huh? <laughs> Good, good for good them. For Arkansas. Well, because I know they got rid of their Medicaid expansion for all intents and purposes, so I'm glad they did something well. But, um, you know, I, I think during during the campaign, I, I made it very clear that I think the minimum wage is ridiculously low. You know, there is no way you can work one or even two minimum wage jobs full time and support uh, yourself or your family. So. Clearly, uh, that has to be addressed, and I think uh, we might take. Uh, was it was it Amazon that just uh, said they'll pay no less than fifteen dollars an hour? Uh, I think that's going to help us in that conversation because uh, you know it's uh, when you look at you know the competition for workers, we we do have a workforce shortage, and so if we've got uh, an employer the size of Amazon. Uh, providing that kind of minimum wage, that's going to put a lot of pressure on other businesses to consider doing the same. And we will work with them. Uh, kind of a, a quick shift of gears here. During the campaign, uh, immigration was a big issue. Your opponent, uh, Chris Kobach, uh, made that a big issue, particularly in the closing weeks as this caravan was moving its way up from Central America. <laughs> and uh, Governor Collier sent some Kansas troops down to help with border security. Uh, are you gonna keep them there? Well, 
let me tell you that, that that's a problem, and I actually asked about this. Um, when you get elected, you go to new governor's camp. and um, <laughs> Do you sleep in bunk beds what? and have roomies and all that kind of thing? Or? Yeah, so... Almost. Okay. Um, but uh, so, you know, we, we got briefed on, on a lot of things, uh, including emergency pre preparedness, homeland security, mm -hmm. uh, and whatnot. And I can't tell you a lot about what we talked about in there, but one thing I learned was that um, the federal government preempts the state government on issues concerning the National Guard. Mm -hmm. So if, if they want... Uh, t they can federalize our National Guard, and then they go under the direction of uh, the president, not the governor. Mm -hmm. So that's that's. So are you attempted to tell the White House that if they want to keep him there. They need to federalize him. Well, I, um, I think that might have already happened, but okay. if it didn't, yeah, I'll be, I'll be telling because no, I mean I think that was a, I I think that was just um, an optic. Uh, mm -hmm. and to make a point uh, towards the end of, of the campaign. Uh, and I think, you know, I grew up in a military family, Jim. You know, I know what it's like uh, to be left behind when your dad goes uh, on assignment. And to do that to a family for no good reason. Uh, it's one thing when you're trying to protect, uh, you know, the United States. It's another thing when you're using it for political advantage. And so, no, I would not, never do that. And one of the reasons I brought up is because immigration was a big issue, but it was also, it's also a huge issue for the ag community in Kansas, particularly southwest Kansas. And you, you had it out with uh, Mr. Kobach uh, at the state fair debate over this issue. And then the Farm Bureau, which typically uh, makes an endorsement in the governor's race, to the surprise of many, did not endorse the Republican nominee. And do you think that had something to do with it, his position on immigration? Uh, might have. Um, I will also tell you, though, that the Farm Bureau have, has endorsed me before in my state Senate races, so um, I think they recognize that mm -hmm. I, I, uh, I get it and, and um, I appreciate and understand the importance of agriculture in our state. Uh, so it might have been just deciding uh, that uh, I was good enough. So, <laughs> um, but you know the the immigration issue again is is a really a federal issue. We have got to have uh, Congress put together a comprehensive um, immigration reform and get it done and get that off the table. You know we've been suffering uh, under this for the last twenty years. I just I was talking to President Farley uh, just before I came in here, and he said the difficulty in recruiting foreign students to come in here. Uh, into the United States at all, Washburn specifically, is very, very difficult. You know, that uh, all of our universities, uh, Washburn, particularly Fort Hayes State, KU, K-State, Wichita State, have, have uh, really recruited uh, foreign students to come into the state for years. Uh, and their recruiting efforts are not going well now. People, those those students who are some of, quite honestly, the best and the brightest in fields that we need, uh, in in healthcare and in technology, uh, are going to other countries uh, because we've been so unfriendly, and okay. I don't I don't want us to be unfriendly as a state. We have time for just one or two more. I want to go back to the audience questions. So whichever one of you is up, go ahead. 
So I'm going to back us up just a bit to agriculture again. Um, agriculture is a major economic driver in Kansas. How do we overcome the economic downturn in that sector? Well, we get rid of the tariff discussion. That, that would help. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, that's huge. The immigration issue is also huge. Um, but one of the things that we did early on was, was put together a, uh, what we call our Rural Prosperity Plan. And if you care enough, it's on the website, you can go look at it. But it's a very detailed and very doable uh, plan uh, that would have us working with our uh, rural communities and having them you know, sort of evaluate their assets and figure out ways that they can um, put things together so that they grow, uh, you know, or make some very tough decisions. Uh, but I also think that the state needs to be a better partner uh, with our rural communities. I mean, some of, the, some of the things that we've done over the past eight years have hit our rural communities much harder than any place else. You know, when you underfund the schools and they have to close, uh, when you don't expand Medicaid and your rural hospitals close or on the brink of it, the, the impact on the economy there is huge. Uh, and felt uh, very deeply. So I think, you know, as we go back and we start funding our schools adequately, uh, we can get Medicaid expansion done, uh, that's going to be a huge help uh, to our rural communities. And we haven't talked about highways, but highways are key to rural development and agriculture as well. Uh, the Brownback administration put 21 projects that were scheduled as a part of TWORKS on the shelf. Uh, the task force that is meeting once those 21 projects taken off the shelf and completed as soon as possible, roughly $600 million worth. Uh, how quickly can you get to those? Not by next Tuesday, that's for sure. That's going to take a while. Uh, but we are, we're working with, um, with our communities on that. Uh, and, and we will, yeah, I don't, we don't have the budget all done yet, but we will look for ways to ensure that we fulfill some of our promises uh, that were made to these well, communities a long time ago. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, transportation, infrastructure, whether you're looking at highways, you're looking at broadband, are critical uh, to our rural communities also. And uh, as part of our rural prosperity plan, we will be addressing those issues. You did promise during the campaign to four-lane that section of Highway 69 down in Southeast. So that, that's on the list of things to do, right? <laughs> Cute. Um, <laughs> Well, you help Actually, I will tell you that the next 11 miles is already in the budget, and they will be uh, oh, taking care of that in this fiscal go. year. So it's done. The people of Southeast Kansas. And that, that was not my budget. I'm not telling anybody what's in my budget, but I believe that I believe that the Department of Transportation found the money to go ahead and complete those they 11 found miles. It. They, they found the money. Okay. Uh, so I think that's, uh, that's in process. But just to make sure, I mean, it is your intention to try to get these highway programs back on track over time? Absolutely. You know, I, I've always been a major uh, supporter of the transportation program. You know, I think it was 30 years ago under Governor Hayden, uh, we put together the first comprehensive 10-year plan. Uh, and Kansas became a model uh, for the entire United States. We had the best roads in the country. And we need to go back uh, to that. It's, you know, when you look at education, healthcare, and transportation are probably the three biggest drivers of, um, of our economy. And they, they have all suffered uh, the last eight years, and we need to put them okay. all back in place. Your water glass is empty. I've made you talk a lot. Do you have time for one more question from the audience? Okay. 
so, so again, a huge pile of questions here, and, and we'll make sure that uh, the governor-elect has all these questions so that uh, she can follow up as she sees fit. <laughs> uh, if your You're question welcome. didn't get answered. But uh, w one, one final uh, question here from, from Mike uh, in Topeka uh, that I think is fitting uh, fitting note to end on, which is, uh, when your term as governor is over, and he has an asterisk here, no rush. So perhaps he means, <laughs> perhaps he means your first term. You uh, packed the <laughs> audience tonight, didn't you? They're Say what? Your you packed the audience. They're all your friends. There you go. For, four years from now, uh, what, what is the one thing that you want to have accomplished? And uh, how can we, or the assembled audience here, uh, help you do it? Uh, Re-election. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, I really do. I mean, I, I ran uh, because uh, I wanted to be in a position to help put our state back together. You know, it's, it's always the way I was focused as a state senator. Uh, I, I wanted this opportunity uh, to work with my legislators, work with the people of Kansas uh, to put it back together. You know, I, I moved to Kansas uh, about 32 years ago. Uh, my husband and I were living in Denver at the time we had our first child. And because I grew up in the military, I really wanted to put down some, some permanent roots. And so Ted and I thought about it and decided that we would come to Kansas. And so we did 32 years ago. Uh, and we came here because of, of the great schools. Uh, we came here because of the good job opportunities, and we came here for a quality of life that uh, is surpassed by no other state. So I want to bring all that back for other Kansans, for future generations. Okay. We're going to segue to the next part of our program here, but I want to uh, let you go, Governor, and thank you again for spending some time with us, and you can make a graceful exit from the stage, no doubt, to applause I'll, while we reconfigure. I'll work on the graceful part. <laughs> but, Jim, I, I want to thank you, in case you are. Um, the Kansas I, News I wanted Service. To, and yeah. the Kansas News Service, of course. Yeah. I wanted you all to notice that my KCUR... Uh, and she wasn't given that backstage as a prop she brought this it is, with her. This is the most expensive water bottle known to man. <laughs> <laughs> at, at any rate, but I, you know what I really like about tonight is that uh, all during the campaign, trust me, I had groups like this all the time that I was talking to, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I drove my staff crazy because I, I would just take questions on questions and questions when they're trying to give me the hook. Uh, but it's, it's nice to be back among uh, folks and really have these conversations and, uh, and know that you're there uh, and that uh, you'll be there as we try to put everything back the way it needs to be. So we'll do this again, maybe? Hmm? We'll do this again after you've had a chance to uh, take the temperature of the legislature and see what you can get done. <laughs> Delighted. All right. <laughs> you all heard it. Thank you very much.